Hello, this is Laura Stark. I'm Associate Professor at Vanderbilt University and Associate Editor of the journal History and Theory. I had the great pleasure of talking with Lundy Braun about her influential book, Breathing Race into the Machine, The Surprising Career of the Spirometer from Plantation to Genetics. The book was published in 2014 by University of Minnesota Press. Lundy Braun is at Brown University, a professor of Africana Studies and a professor in the Department of Pathology and laboratory medicine. I had the pleasure of interviewing Lundy Braun along with students in my seminar, History of Global Health. A full list of students who are involved in the interview is available on this episode's website. I hope you enjoy. So thanks again for making the time to talk with us. Um, and we're really big fans of your book, Breathing Race into the Machine. To start us off, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about this instrument that the book is organized around, the spirometer. Um, one of the most remarkable things in the book is the images that you show and that the spirometer isn't an instrument that was a thing of the past, but it's actually the first image in the book is uh, a present day doctor's office in which we see a spirometer. So if we were to walk into a clinic and to sit down in front of a spirometer, what would we do? What would we be looking at? Well, it, uh, let me just first ask the group um, if they've ever heard of a spirometer before. Yes. yes so how many people have heard of one? About five. Oh, okay. Okay. That's that's quite a few. So it would depend a lot on the office you were going into. So um, this was from a primary care doctor's office. And my suspicion is that um, they're not quite as up to date. Not that that means that they don't do as decent a job, but as up to date as a pulmonologist's office would be. So I think for people who have um, had spirometry taken in a specialist office, they would be looking at a different kind of machine. The machines now tend to be totally computerized and in many cases touch screen. So you're going to, the operator will pull down on the, or touch the race and any other parameter they have to input. They will do it through touch. It some somewhat less new might have pull down menus, and then this it was very clear there was a button, and that is the spirometer that was used in the office um, in two thousand and five or six. I can't remember the date. So what you would see, what you would do, differs in some ways, but in most, in all, you would have to blow into the machine. And then um, your the um, how much air you um, after inspiration. So you'd first have to inspire and then expire into the tube, and so it would measure how much air after uh, you expired, and then also the speed in a minute. So those are two spirometry values. There's many, many, many more. They're the only ones that are race corrected. Right. So uh, one of the remarkable things that you show is that the um, the race correction isn't something that was uh, in the 19th century built into instruments and just happened to uh, get stuck in into them. But actually, the race correction in the, the spirometer, the material of the spirometer itself, was actually a late 21st century, uh, late 20th century introduction 
of the of the idea of a race correction. So to sort of start us off, um, Madison wanted to ask a question about why the spirometer. Yeah. So of all the topics that could have been chosen, how and why did you choose the spirometer, especially when there are many other tools and practices that have had similar effects on race culture? Well, it was actually very um, pragmatic. I in and it's in the um, I describe how I came to the spirometer in the first chapter where I was reading the newspaper <laughs> and I came across this idea of race correction. And I happened to also be in a, a workshop on race and medicine with Evelyn, organized by Evelyn Hammonds. And I was also teaching general pathology to medical students. And so because I was in that workshop um, analyzing race and medicine, and it had come up um, periodically in my med school classes, that I just sort of looked at this article and I was very interested in asbestos and asbestos diseases. And so as that conjuncture kind of caught my attention and I wondered how could this be? I actually didn't know anything about spirometry and had wasn't aware of its importance actually as a diagnostic tool in asbestos related diseases. So it was serendipitous. And then I started studying it a little bit with a friend who's a um pul- is a pulmonologist and um then it kind of morphed into a book. I never thought it'd be a book. Well, we're glad that it was. Um and especially because you occupy such an interesting position as both a practicing scientist in a science department and also you're in an African studies department as well. And so the first chapters of the book are really telling the history and the really interesting history of the spirometer. And there seems to be um, a moment in about the middle of the 20th century and the, the last three chapters of the book in which we see the the debates about um, anatomy and pathology and the, the challenges over different forms of expertise really coming to matter when compensation and especially workmen's compensation becomes an issue in the three different um, domains that you're looking at. So the book is following these sorts of knowledges around the knowledges of lung capacity around the, the, um, the UK, Britain, the United States and South Africa, as well as all of the, um, the colonial te- uh, tendrils of the time period from the middle of the 19th century until the present day. And we really liked the way that you organized the book because you were, you organize it around knowledge networks. So it's not a comparative study of these three different sites, but it's looking at how different forms of expert knowledge travel in between them. And the special role that the, um, the United States plays particularly in lung capacity being racialized. Um, in the, the spirometer, as you sort of point out in the first chapter, was credited with being a, an instrument that was developed in, in Britain by Hutchinson. And you point out that actually a lot of the tools and ideas had been around for about two centuries before that. But the spirometer came together when uh, there was this convergence of precision instrumentation 
uh, statistics, and you you specifically have a nice shout out to Ian Hacking's work, and then importantly, industrial capitalism. And industrial capitalism comes to figure in two ways, in which there was a need for by uh, the political elite for a workforce and a workforce that was cheap, but it also enabled the mass production eventually of these machines. So the uh, the industrial capitalism factor really um, worked in both ways. So in the context of um, of creating a, a cheap, efficient, healthy labor force, efficiency was equated with what was called vital capacity. And that was basically reduced to be lung capacity. So you show us how in the, in the, uh, in the UK, in Britain, the way that lung capacity was um, sliced when you looked at human variation was with occupation. But things really changed when this sort of um, information and data traveled to the United States. And you talk about how the spirometer gained what what, um, you call, referring to Lorraine Dastin's work, you call epistemic authority. And here I'm going to hand the the floor over to Ali for a question on epistemic authority. In the epilogue, you mentioned the following. In each domain, racialization enhances the epistemic authority of the spirometer and of lung capacity the entity was purported to measure. Could you further explain to us what exactly you maybe meant by epistemic authority as a as a term? Well, what what I meant um, quite simply was that it became this tool that um, was relied on in in actually so many different domains, and I never had anticipated this. Uh, I thought it was just going to be a medical instrument, and it was, and then it wasn't, and then it was again. Um, but it had authority for producing knowledge. And, uh, you know, to this day, it has tremendous authority. And what what I'm arguing there is that we it wouldn't have gained that authority without its rationalization. Now, people could disagree with me. Um, and, you know, there there's never any absolute quote-unquote scientific proof, Um, but by pulling together these various um, spaces in which spirometry was was highly valued, um, physical culture or physical education was a huge surprise, and I certainly never thought I'd be doing history of having to research history of physical education. It turned out to be fascinating, and then Amherst College isn't too far away, so they had archives that I could work in, um, and it was delightful. But um, that was an area where I think it it had a huge impact on the industry for um, creating, um, for manufacturing the instrument. So, you know, at, at the end, I'm just, I'm looking at these various spaces it is primarily um, used in medicine, and I think having your lung capacity measured is almost the first thing that would be done in a pulmonologist's office. Um, if you you know you come in with a respiratory, you wouldn't go to a pulmonologist without having some respiratory condition that the primary care doctor didn't feel they could handle it. 
One of the key ways that you show that the spirometer and uh, lung, capa- lung capacity and therefore the idea of um, vital capacity was racialized was in the, um, the category of whiteness. And so you show that in the early 20th century and, um, and then also in other, in other efforts in the later 20th century, when the spirometer is basically being validated, um, the idea of what is a normal body and the question of what is a normal body, so what would be a normal lung capacity, only included data from white bodies and intentionally excluded non-white bodies as well. And there, it was, it's interesting to see um, with these different professions that you bring into the book, the um, physical education in the early 20th century for producing uh, the category of whiteness, occupational therapists and really pushing against the assumption of um, the explanatory factor being race as opposed to environmental or structural political con- uh, working conditions. That, that whiteness really mattered in producing an idea of what a normal body was and the, the, uh, the language, the vocabulary of race was removed from that conversation. Could you talk a bit about how whiteness came to play and came to be built into the spirometer? So where I realized that was, how, again, you know, I, I never anticipated I, that I would um, um, sort of come get, develop that concept. I was primarily looking at this as a comparative <coughs> um, study. So, and then when I was deep in the physical culture, the physical education um, archives, there was no mention except very briefly um, a reference to Gould's. Um, work previously, which, which told me that they were that at least um, the um, forgetting his name now. Um, how I, how could I do that? It's not Hutchison; it's the other H. Anyway, the um, the guy at Amherst, <laughs> and I realized that what they were concerned with was they had these nice specimens of. Um, young males, many off the farms and in New England, and they were trying to mold them in all sorts of ways. And part of that was to figure out what was a normal body. What I don't quite understand satisfactorily is, like, why did they latch on to lung capacity? I mean, they were measuring lots of different things. They were doing anthropometry, but um uh, oh shoot i can't believe i'm forgetting his name um, are you are you thinking of hitchcock yes thank you um but hitchcock devoted a lot of time and attention to the lung capacity measurements and you know he wasn't doing much with them except at amherst and comparing them and you know measuring them every year um, but then in his speeches, a little, and he didn't give a lot of public talks, um, but in some speeches later, he would talk about the Anglo-Saxon male. And that's when I realized that this was really about um, whiteness and, um, and what is the norm. And ironically, 
that's still true because the the norm for spirometers is always a white norm. So whether they're correcting by 10 or 15% from what they consider normal, that's that's population-based studies of whites. And then um, the other way they do race correction is do population-specific measurements, but still um, white measurements are always the highest. Um, So, you know, I came upon that, again, utterly serendipitously. Right. Yeah, it's it's um, it's really remarkable because um, you you show that in the UK context in the late 19th century, it was intuitive just to see human variation. Um, the relevant category was what one's job was. If you wanted to try to explain why there was variation in people's um, their their health or in their their physical um, comportment. But there's all sorts of other things that researchers also considered as explaining um, differences in lung capacity. So body surface, I think I liked the idea, <laughs> the idea that somebody's body surface was the uh, was really relevant, and that's what you needed to be um, uh, collecting data on, or people's height or their age or all sorts of other things. And the the Americanization of the spirometer really it's just impressive that that's where race really entered entered in and then especially was amplified in this the South African context. Um, you know, gender also seems to be important for uh, thinking of the category of whiteness as well in the early 20th century, especially in physical education and occupational therapy. Um, and so this is more of like a, a broader question for you, but why is the book a book about race as opposed to a book about gender? And I imagine this is sort of like a personal political answer. Well, it's that I first came across it as a racial question. Um, So in the lawsuit, it was male um, asbestos workers. I mean, most of the worker industrial workers, many were male, Um, not all, of course, but in in the plants in Baltimore. They were mostly male. So I that's how I came across it. And the literature is um, and the machine corrects for race. It also does um, correct in a certain sense for um, gender, but it works really differently. And I, you know, I do address gender somewhat. Uh, in in the book, uh, particularly in physical education, when it came to be um, used in women's colleges, and but I didn't. The book was getting to. I didn't want the book to be any longer, so I think a thorough explanation of race and gender um, would have been both unwieldy, but it's. It's racialization is what sticks out because for gender, you can actually, under, you know, on average, women are smaller. And, you know, so the correction doesn't seem wrong in the way that actually race correction seemed to me. 
Right. And um, so the way in which it's, it seemed wrong is that human variation could be explained in terms of structural and political inequalities. Um, so especially in the Jim Crow South, for example, that the reason why there were differences or even in South Africa is that working conditions were different for different people. And that was patterned around race. And so the explanatory fact by, by pointing to race as opposed to the structural political factors um, as driving the patterns uh, what really seemed to be a, a choice based on um, racialized assumptions. One, one also sort of a broader question for you is you seem very intentionally to use the language of racial instruments and racialized data as opposed to racist. And I wonder how you would encourage us to think about the careful um, choice in the word of racialized as opposed to racist. So racialized get for studying the process by which race got embedded into the instrument, racialized gives us a sense of process um, of it happening over time and place. And I would, uh, it depends on the audience I'm speaking to. I do think the consequences are racist uh, and that it is racist to continue to, uh, to continue to race correct, especially now that, you know, there is information. I've also written a scientific article on um, this, so it's not unknown. Uh, so, so I, I'm, I don't use the language of bias. I don't believe I use that. I might have occasionally there, but no, you now, don't use the language of bias. No, yeah. Absolutely. So that's intentional. But here I was trying to get a process that these things happen. They get embedded, embedded, um, or attached to. Um, instruments by people who may or may not have any idea what they're doing at the time. It's pretty notable that this was, that the lung capacity measurements, not the instrument, but the measurements themselves were only contested by, um, by Du Bois and then uh, um, Johnny Myers in South Africa. So it pretty much nobody had raised questions except around the technicalities of, of the instrument. So that's what I was trying to get at. I do now though, um, I, I do use the language of racism to describe what's happened. The book also shows and, and holds open these spaces of hope, the sort of the paths that were um, not pursued in terms of uh, categories of measurement or people who in the early 20th century and middle 20th century were actually suggesting that the relevant um, explanatory factor in human variation that was coming up in the data wasn't race, but it was environmental by which they meant socioeconomic and, and, um, and political. But the way in which um, globalization and as a result, standardization of measurements and also the categories, as well as the instrument of the spirometer, the standardization was really important in um, having 
race, as you as you write, built into the machine, where it becomes what Bruno Latour would just call a black box, where nobody um, opens opens up the instrument to see what the political assumptions are that are built in into it at all. Right. right. Um, and uh, looking back at some of the the um, the the your data your empirical evidence that you pull up that was most striking for us is the the actual quotation why why lung capacity that um a researcher around the turn of the 20th century in the united states importantly in the jim crow south specifically um said that it was well understood that quote two causes um of difference in in human variation in illness was first the the less lung capacity and the smaller brain size of people with different races. And so there's so much research, historical research, on phrenology. Um, But what you're showing is that along with phrenology was this idea of lung capacity really being a, a key index of the reason why researchers thought there was an innate difference in the United States. but And throughout the book, the U.S. seems to play a really um, important role, even when the context of the United States is stripped out of the of the data as it circulates through these knowledge networks. And so on this point, I will, um, Ashley is going to follow up about the place of the United States and where that where that leads us. Okay. Yes. So it's clear um, in your arguments that the scientific research we've come to accept isn't always a reflection of reality. Um, So now that researchers are more aware of this construction of uh, racist categories of collecting data, how can U.S. researchers in particular help reconcile this? Well... You know, unfortunately, we continue along the pathway of looking for genetic differences between races. So, you know, it is somewhat um, discouraging, but also not surprising to the people who've been doing this work for, you know, three decades, really, uh, that would improve knowledge, start to change things. I think Nancy Krieger has a statistic that I think is useful about how much um, how much NIH invests in genetics research around race versus um, studies of racism. And I think she did this maybe 2005, and it was 500-fold difference. So it does pose a very simple question that, you know, you don't get answers to questions you don't pose. And if you're looking for genetic differences, you know, it just is a machine now that keeps looking for genetic differences. Um, so I I don't quite know how to answer that. I like to think that the waters are being troubled some, but there's also um, a major um, marketized industry attack attached to genetics research that makes it more difficult um, to turn things around and say, you know, we should be studying something different. Yeah. So genetic tests being sort of the, the, um, the more present day 
uh, or uh, contemporary with the, the spirometer, which continues to exist with this, the race correction in the present day, um, as contemporary or similar to genetic testing. Um, and I like your phrasing that you don't get answers to questions you don't ask, which is why the categories through which variation is explained um, seem to matter so much, not so, uh, only partly the actual measurements, but the way in which the questions are conceptualized in the first place. Um, and we too were big fans of Nancy Krieger um, and a critical epidemiologist. She's at, she's at um, Harvard Medical School, is that right? I think it was public, School of Public Health. School of Public Health. Yeah, that's great. Um, so thanks for that shout out. Another, another shout out I wanted to make and actually to think about how um, the material aspects, by which I mean the, when money uh, comes to the, to the front of all of these questions, the spirometer really pulled to the fore in, in the United States, that um, compensation around uh, workplace disability and also life insurance seemed to be one of the um, very early places where who was owing money to whom really brought the spirometer to center stage. So I wonder if you could just talk us through the case of the Prudential Life Insurance Company and their head statistician, which is also um, a case that knits really nicely with Dan Bauck's work on um, in his book, How Our Days Became Numbered. But could you, could you tell listeners a bit about the Prudential Life Insurance Company and their role in all of this? So I don't think the company itself had a huge role. Um, so I, it, as it turned out, um, for the life insurance industry, including um, Metropolitan Life and Lewis Dublin, they, it, well, Lewis Dublin sort of dismissed uh, lung capacity as a key measurement for insurance purposes. What's interesting about um, um, Frederick Kaufman and Prudential is that he he made his career off the book, The Race, Traits, and Tendencies of the American Negro, and that truly nobody could view as anything but a racist diatribe. Um, and it's just a hideous book to read. He His book is really hideous, and then Samuel Cartwright work, Cartwright's work is really hideous. Um, but he he wrote that book before he was chief statistician, and he what it looks like to me he was promoted on the basis of that book, and um, and then he went on to serve for forty years, addressing questions of race. Interestingly, he was very pro worker, um, but not if it was black workers. Um, so he was. His um, views about race never left, but um, I think for the companies, a spirometer was just too much um, to a technology that was beyond what they could use on a mass basis. So it was really this individual, and he's who Du Bois and Kelly Miller responded to. Um, so I don't think it became a really important a measure of anything at the com- at Prudential. Okay, around the turn of the of the the uh, the twentieth century, right, um, right at that period. 
Yeah, in connecting that with the the our earlier discussion of the use of the term um, racist versus racialized, I can also imagine when you engage different audiences around that vocabulary and have to choose your choose your language carefully, that the idea of saying that something is racist suggests that there might be a few individuals that you could just get rid of and then everything would be okay. But the real persuasive power of this book is showing how the the instruments themselves build in, they don't allow people to not ask a question about racial difference. It, the instrument itself forces the question in the present day. Um, and let you, you leave open really, really nicely the spaces and opportunities for us to have, to have hope because you show us places of contestation where scientists, for example, in, um, in the UK aligned with workers' movements to try to get better forms of compensation using the spirometer. And then also even in South Africa, um, how there were um, health professionals who were aligning with the union workers to try to work towards greater social justice. And so you're also a scientist. And we really like that because we want to try to imagine a world in which change is possible. Um, but not possible, but not necessarily through running away from problems, but actually engaging them and trying to to work from the inside. And so Isabel is going to follow up on this issue. Throughout the book, there are several instances in which you talk about uh, eugenic and anthropometric data and how they were um, either not published or they were considered inconclusive. Um, yet a lot of these studies are still cited in the present day. Um, to support the process of race correction. Um, so we were wondering, as a scientist yourself, how do you personally orient your work and your research, um, knowing that these instruments have political and cultural biases built into them? Okay, so first of all, I'm no longer a practicing scientist. So I I was, and I was trained, but as I moved into the field of science studies and Africana studies, it wasn't possible to actually do this. I couldn't have written this book as a full-time practicing scientist. There just wouldn't have been the hours in the day to become acquainted with the kinds of debates I needed to, historiographic debates, et cetera, that I needed to know about. Um, so I, I personally am not incorporating them into scientific practice. Uh, I do understand you know, at least some of the science um, as it gets more computational, of course. I don't understand it and nobody understands it, but my hope is that people, younger people who are practicing science, scientists can imagine how would you um, actually start to think about uh, research on something, an object like this, without reinscribing those categories over and over and over. Um, so that, you know, that is what I, my hope is. Um, I, it, it is challenging though, for the reasons I said earlier, it's quite challenging. I have a class full of students who want to be able to do that. So we'll, we'll see how it, how it works. Yeah, no, that, that's great because it's also so important, especially when you're showing in the in the last three chapters of the book that it matters in the nuts and bolts of the legal system and who is compensated um, for for injury 
and basically trying to understand the causes, uh, sort of the, the distal, the structural causes of, um, of, dist- of differences in health. So you and, look- and the interesting thing about in um, South Wales when the mine workers union was um, operating is that they were so invested in objective knowledge. So I I think there's a real something that need culturally scientifically um, that needs to be wrestled with is is there an instrument that can do all the work we're asking something like the spirometer to do. I mean, is there this objective way of assessing bodies that are complicated and changing? Right. And I think of people like Sandra Harding doing work on um, rethinking the category of objectivity for for things like strong objectivity and um, despite people's dissatisfaction with, with that. But but yeah, the, the history of objectivity, there's been so much work on and thinking of the different forms of expertise. This has been really um, tremendously interesting and helpful for us. And to sort of wrap us up, we want to think a little bit more with, with your help about um, what the future might look like, what it could look like, given that we're, uh, except for me, I'm old, <laughs> a, a, a classroom full of, of people just starting off in their careers um, in, in healthcare, in social activism, in different sorts of fields. And Margaret is going to take over from here. So through your analysis of the spirometer, and we are able to conclude that instruments can have racist biases embedded within them. Obviously, everything is politicized in some way. But with this in mind, is there a future in which racist tools and metrics don't exist? If so, how can we actively work towards this future? So I do think it is possible to examine how racism got embedded through seeing, um, and that's what I hope that that my book and the article that is part of the project can show how did it actually how did racism get embedded in the machine um what was the process of racialization that by which it happened and then just start to see recognize it elsewhere so there's a lot um in the press in the last couple weeks about an algorithm that discriminated against um blacks there the algorithm didn't even use race um as a input, but nonetheless, it discriminated. And so now people argue that all you do is need to tweak the algorithm and this will all go away. I don't think it's that simple. But so we, first of all, have to accept that racism is deeply embedded in science and medicine. And that in the U.S., the in the U.S. can lead in certain areas like this. So another example that I'm working on is um, kidney function and uh, race correction of kidney function. And and so there, the history is quite different. But the there are so many examples, and actually they're proliferating right now um, between al- uh, algorithms, calculators, etc. So... I do have some faith that when we get more students into science, scientific uh, specialties and then in medical specialties, that they 
that the questioning will begin to unsettle things. The, the thing that, you know, certainly you all have to be aware of is that, you know, medicine in particular is extremely hierarchical. I mean, it's more hierarchical, certainly, than science. And, and so the possibilities for questioning for students can be difficult and have consequences. So that, on the other hand, I do see um, more, because I work in the med school, uh, I also I do see more students questioning, and then they'll go on to be practitioners and um, continue to question. So it, it really is a matter of, of, of thinking there's a problem in the first place. That needs to be questioned, and and what many are reluctant to acknowledge is that we have a deeply that the U.S. is a deeply racist society, and that science and medicine are are implicated in that pretty profoundly. Well, imagining um, imagining otherwise, it's uh, especially here in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, is what we're trying to what we're trying to do together, and you are a great a great help for that. Um, in thinking about this. And the, the issue, again, that you really emphasize so well is that it's not simply um, language. So in the debates about whether language creates the world or uh, matter creates the world, of course, it's an interaction, um, an interaction between the two. But that the idea of non-white things, things that people, bodies, measurements that are non-white are pathological. Mm-hmm. Um, is so clear um, in the evidence that you show um, in this history of the spirometer. And we'll, we'll look forward to reading more, thinking more, I hope talking more with you about, uh, about your own work and looking forward um, to critically examining uh, algorithms, machine learning, and, and the new ways in which race okay. is being, <laughs> being built into the I machines mean, of medicine. Exploding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, it was really nice. I, it's, I'm always um, thrilled to hear student questions because I don't usually teach my own book. So um, it's it's special to hear the kinds of questions that um, the book generated. And I appreciate doing this um, this interview with you. Well, thank you. And there's so many more questions in there. And I hope that uh, listeners will, will check it out with their own questions, too. 